At a time when information continues to come at us faster and faster, sometimes you need to hit pause and rewind. NPR's Throughline takes you back in time to the source of the news stories filling your feed. Find NPR's Throughline wherever you get your podcasts. Support for WABE comes from Capital Good Fund, introducing Georgia Bright Solar Lease Program, a new rooftop solar initiative designed to create pathways to equitable and inclusive solar, sustainability, and monthly savings for Georgians. Learn more at georgiabright.org. W-A-B-E in Atlanta, this is City Lights. I'm Lois Reitzes. Thank you for listening. Regular physical activity is among the most important things for good health. And seniors should note that it's not too late to begin some form of exercise for your overall well-being. Later this hour, we'll hear about... 74-year-old Carolyn Hartfield, who leads hikes for senior citizens throughout Georgia. And there's one on Saturday at Sweetwater Creek. First, America's history of depicting black visual images has often demonized and characterized African Americans in dehumanizing ways. For centuries, black artists, scholars, and activists have worked tirelessly to counter negative images and narratives as they envision themselves. The exhibition Black American Portraits highlights and restores the dignity and humanity of black images spanning over two centuries, from the 1800s to the present. The mediums range from painting to drawing to photography, mixed media, and more. The show, which opens at Spelman College on February 8th, is co-curated by Liz Andrews, Spelman College Museum of Fine Art Executive Director, and Christine Y. Kim, the Tate's Britain family curator at large. Liz Andrews joins me now via Zoom. Welcome to City Lights. Thank you. It's so wonderful to be here. Please tell us a bit about your background and how you landed at the Spelman Museum as executive director. Sure. So I have long been interested in the intersection of art and social justice. And really that began with myself as an artist. I'm a singer and have done performance. And when I graduated from college, I moved back home to Denver, Colorado, and joined the Denver Spirituals Project. It's a multi-generational choir focused on the songs by and about 
enslaved people in this country. And I had just graduated from Wesleyan University doing American studies with a focus on social justice. And I realized that somehow these songs were imbued with more of the um, emotion and experience of history than I had found in any of my textbooks over those four years. And so that sparked something in me to think about how art can be a conduit for history, can tell stories in ways that books and even oral histories might not be able to. Hmm. And your involvement at the intersection of visual art and social justice, was that taking place at the same time as your musical performance? That evolved over time. I'd say I had a windy road of working with community organizations in poetry, in music, in film. And I found my way to the visual arts really when I started my PhD program in cultural studies. And I was looking at the visual images that got Barack Obama elected in 2008. I was thinking about how important it was for people to see, literally see, this Black man as presidential. And so I looked at a range of things, including art, but also things on very early social media. There was no Instagram at that time. But how people consumed images and really felt connected to this idea of his candidacy because of powerful visual images. And so when I got to the point where I was writing my dissertation, I started a position at the Los Angeles County Museum of Art, LACMA, working in the director's office. And I'd always been studying the visual arts, but that was a serious course in not only art, but how museums are run and frankly, how knowledge is created through things like encyclopedic institutions, you know, places like LACMA and the High Museum of Art in many ways define what counts as great art for the ages. And the connection there as well, which I'm sure factored into your academic research, was one with David Driscoll and his groundbreaking work as a curator and art scholar as well as artist with uh, 200 years of Black art in America. Is that his work? Right. It's it's interesting because when COVID-19, you know, came to our shores in 2020, it really hit me when David Driscoll passed away from the disease very early on. It was March or April, 2020. And so as Christine and I started getting together and meeting about really at that time, the Obama portraits, because our exhibition that is coming to Spelman, Black American Portraits was originally a companion show for the Obama portraits. 
And of course, Christine coming out of the Studio Museum and having such a dedication to African-American art and art of the African diaspora alongside my expertise in visual images of Barack Obama was a really perfect meeting of the minds. And we knew that people were going to come out to see the Obama portraits. At this moment in time, I'd say those portraits might be for many people as recognizable as the Mona Lisa. People want to see them. But we wanted people to walk away with a deeper history. It's not as if these images, these portraits appeared out of nowhere. There's a long history of portraiture as a tool of power. And so summer of 2020, we've seen David Driscoll pass away. We had seen the horrifying images of George Floyd and others brutally and violently dying and abused at the hands of vigilantes at police. And so we thought to ourselves, this is a moment in time where there is an abundance of images going into our psyche that are, that are normalizing Black suffering and death. And of course, this is part of a long history of images of Black people going all the way back to enslavement that have been used to justify slavery and injustices. So we thought to ourselves, what we need at this moment in time is a show, an exhibition, a project that focuses on joy and beauty and complexity and thinking about the ways that Black Americans have seized the medium of portraiture for our own purposes to counter the dominant negative images that have been out there, including the, you know, in some ways necessary visualizations of Black suffering and death in 2020 and, and so many years before. In what ways does the exhibition at the Spelman Museum place Black women portrait artists center stage? I'm so glad that you asked that because the exhibition features more than 115 artworks spanning over 200 years. And it is in many ways a tribute to two centuries of Black American art, which opened at LACMA in 1976, guest curated by David Driscoll, and by the way, traveled to Atlanta after that. Yes. So it has artists of all genders, primarily Black, but not entirely. There are several non-Black artist allies with images in the show. But for Spellman, we have acquired four new artworks that will be exclusively at the Spelman College Museum of Art presentation. Two sculptures by the incredible Harlem Renaissance artist and, and force of Augusta Savage. We have a photograph by the Atlanta-based photographer Sheila Prebright mm. that depicts Spelman alumna 
Stacey Abrams during her 2018 run for governor. And then finally, we have a painting that is truly special. It's a commission that we did with Kalita Rawls, a painter based out of Los Angeles, California, who graduated from Spelman College, who does these beautiful large-scale paintings of primarily women underwater. And so when you walk into the gallery, there's a hallway and then a large wall called a signature wall. There will be two paintings on that wall, one by Amy Sherald, who of course painted Michelle Obama's presidential portrait for the National Portrait Gallery. And then next to that will be Kalita Rawls' new work, which will be unveiled at the Spelman Museum. And I think that uh, seeing the images, people will be really blown away. Mm. If you are just joining us, this is City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Reitz, speaking with Liz Andrews, the executive director of Spelman College Museum of Fine Art and co-curator of their new exhibition, Black American Portraits. I'm eager for you to talk a bit more about the counter-narrative to negative depictions or depictions of suffering. When it comes to historic visual depictions of Black people in American culture, from minstrel shows to the negative images still seen today, how have Black Americans used portraits to envision themselves? I think that a really important place to begin when thinking about that conversation is the work that the photographer and photo historian Deborah Willis has done, especially around images from emancipation and early photography. So photography was invented in France in 1839. And in the following decade, it really took off in the United States more than anywhere, and primarily through portrait photography. Now, of course, this coincided with emancipation. So you have this brand new technology that has since changed the way we see ourselves and the world. And this newly freed Black population that is eager to create narratives and visions of their own. So you see photo studios coming up around the country. And this is the first time that Black Americans could participate in the economy of the nation as something other than a commodity to be bought and sold. So you found Black photographers opening up studios. You found that Civil War soldiers and people of some means would go and have their portrait made and bring things like watches to show off class and status, books to indicate education, flags, any of the 
most prized possessions to tell a story, to say, I am not these negative images that you have made of me. This is who I am. This is who we are. And that is a legacy that has continued all the way through today. So you think about the Great Migration is what beget the Harlem Renaissance when this large exodus from Southern states to cities like Chicago and St. Louis and New York happened, it opened up new opportunities for people in different industries, but also created these artistic centers like Harlem where people like Augusta Savage would open up her studio to her peers and to younger artists to teach them about how to sculpt, to have conversations. And so that legacy continues through, for instance, the civil rights movement, Black is Beautiful. You know, the 1990s was a huge abundance of art and, and academic writing about identity in a new way. And I'll say that much of the art in the show, it, it spans over 200 years, but a lot of the work is from 2020, 2021, and with Kalita Rawls painting 2023. So it's both a look back at history, but also very much of the moment that especially we were in in 2020 and are still grappling with, where we're trying to make sense of this world where there's been in some ways a ratcheting up of violence, but there's also been new opportunities for Black people and Black artists to make waves on new levels. What can you tell us about the Black American Portrait Symposium that will take place March 2nd and 3rd? I am so excited about that because this will be an opportunity for Atlanta, for the AUC students here at Spelman College, and the art world really to gather and think through what the medium of portraiture has done and can do for us. So the opening night panel will be on March 2nd at 4 p.m. And it will feature Amy Sherald, who went to Clark Atlanta University here at the AUC and took her painting classes at Spelman. It will have Kalita Rawls, who graduated from Spelman College. And it will have Bisa Butler, who has an incredible fabric portrait, a quilt of Chadwick Boseman from 2020, who of course played the Black Panther. So those three artists, Kalita, Amy, and Bisa, who went to Howard, are all graduates of historically Black colleges and universities, HBCUs. And so often when we tell the stories of artists, it's a single narrative of an extraordinary maker. But I think there are questions and curiosities that we need to carry out around 
what it means that these incredible, powerful women artists were all nurtured and trained and brought up in HBCU environments. So that panel will be moderated by a friend and fellow curator and museum professional, Naima Keith, who's the director of education and public programs at LACMA. And from there, we have a whole slew of panels and performances from scholars, artists, curators, all day on Friday. And so I think it'll be a real treat for people to come out and see artists that they don't usually see, perhaps, in Atlanta and have conversations that really should be had. Oh, very meaningful. Works by artists of backgrounds other than Black or African American are included in this show. How do those artists express sensitivity and accuracy when conveying Black experience? Inclusion. Because there are artists who are non-Black who have gone out of their way to make sure that their depictions are meaningful, respectful, and beautiful. So, for instance, we have a portrait of Vice President Kamala Harris by the Los Angeles-based photographer Catherine Opie that sits so nicely right next to our picture of Stacey Abrams by Sheila Pree Bright. There is a Bruce Davidson photograph of some kids just playing in the water of a fire hydrant, just a sweet, joyful image. And so things like that, I think are important to put out there because while I would say the dominant lens of the United States has been one that has generally demonized and looked down upon black figures, some artists, many, in fact, have found a way to see otherwise. Liz, what kind of change, hopefully significant change, do you see taking place at museums, nationally and internationally? One of the beautiful struggles that came out of 2020 is that there were calls for justice and representation in all industries, really, but especially in cultural institutions like museums. There are studies that show that museums are some of the most respected and trusted institutions in the United States, across race, across class, people trust museums. They see it as a place to go for education, solace. However, not everyone always feels welcome in those spaces. And part of that may be cost, but it also may be the fact that 
People don't see themselves reflected on the walls. And so I think that we are at a very exciting moment right now where museums across the nation and across the world are taking a look at themselves, some more deeply than others, to say, how can we better represent our audiences, the people who come to see these works here? And it's, it's truly a beautiful struggle because of course, museums seem like they've been around forever, but they have not existed for that long. You know, they're only a few hundred years old as a phenomenon and frankly came out of the colonial project. Part of museums and anthropology, that project was to prove the superiority of Europe and its culture and to identify all others as just that, others. Europe has art, Africa, Asia has objects. And so this moment, there are important conversations happening to have a more accurate and fruitful representation of multiple cultures. Liz Andrews is the executive director of Spelman College Museum of Fine Art. Black American Portraits opens February 8th and will be on view through June 30th. More information is on our website, wabe.org slash City Lights. In a moment, City Lights producer Summer Evans brings us the story of a 74-year-old Atlantan who leads seniors on hikes throughout Georgia. Amplifying Atlanta, this is WABE. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly, and Richmond Graduate University can equip you with everything you need as a licensed professional counselor while integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. That's R-I-C-H-M-O-N-T dot E-D-U. You love free, and at Ameris Bank, so do we. That's why we're proud to offer worry-free, hassle-free Ameris Bank free checking. Manage your money your way with convenient access to digital, mobile, and telephone banking, all with no monthly service fee or minimum balance requirements. At Ameris Bank, we're with you. For more information or to open an account, visit our local bankers in person or online at amerisbank.com slash free checking. Other fees such as overdraft fees may apply. Ameris Bank, member FDIC, equal housing lender. This is City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Reitzes. Great to have you along. Research increasingly shows that some form of physical activity each day can lead to better health and a longer life. 74-year-old Atlantan Carolyn Hartfield knows from personal experience and serves as a role model. She's a health and wellness coach who is passionate about sharing her love of the outdoors with other senior citizens. Hartfield hosts several hikes throughout Georgia, and the next is this Saturday at Sweetwater Creek. 
City Lights producer Summer Evans spoke with Carolyn Hartfield about her road to wellness. I grew up in the city. I was a girly girl, and I had absolutely no interest in the outdoors. However, for my 56th birthday, I am one of those late bloomer baby boomers. I was (laughs) (laughs) invited... I was invited out on a hike and usually for my birthday, I try and do something I've never done before. So I accepted the challenge and my first hike ever in life was at Blood Mountain in the North Georgia mountains. Oh, awesome. Yes. And it was one of the most exhilarating experiences I had had in my life. I was hooked the first time. Man, and that's not an easy hike for that to be your very first one. (laughs) And I didn't know it was supposed to be hard. (laughs) (laughs) I was enjoying it so much. And at the end of the hike, that's when the hike leader said, Carolyn, if you can do this one, you can do any of the trails we hike. This is one of our hardest ones. (laughs) Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. When did you realize this newfound active lifestyle was improving both your mental as well as your physical health? Well, actually, that goes back a little bit to the last day of my 49th year when I went to the doctor and I was diagnosed as prehypertensive. I'm previous owner of health food stores, so I thought I was really doing pretty good, you know, health-wise. And I just absolutely refused to accept that. And I started walking right after that and uh, haven't stopped. (laughs) Oh, wow. It just shows it's not even just what you eat, but how you are physically getting up and walking and running. and Absolutely. And, And being active. And my whole key is in my activities is to have fun so I don't, grudgingly look forward to it. I excitedly look forward to being in the outdoors and just enjoying nature and also meeting other people as well. And um, I have to tell you, I felt like there must be other people out there like me. And that's when I started my group. Mm. Did you take any formal education classes in order to become a health and wellness coach? I did. I attended uh, Emory University for their uh, health coach training and also the uh, international, oh, I've forgotten the other one for the wellness coach, (laughs) but I did get uh, certificates from from both of them, yes. And I owned uh, several health food stores for about five, six years back in the 80s. Nice. So you already had that basis of healthy foods and that sort of thing. Yes. What have been some of your favorite adventures you've had since becoming more active and hiking and walking? Well, that's a very, very good question because I have gone ziplining. I have gone, and I'm not a strong swimmer, but I can swim. I have gone kayaking. I actually, for one of my birthdays, went to visit a friend in Colorado and hiked the Rockies, 
that was the tallest. <laughs> and when I say hike, we actually backpacked. And what made that so special was we had a full moon. We didn't even need our headlamps because we ended wow. up uh, going up the side of the mountain at night, actually. Oh, I'm my gosh. Glad, yeah, it, 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 was, it was really, really, that was phenomenal for me. That sounds exhilarating. Are people <laughs> ever like surprised when they see you on a trail and you're just like keeping up with the rest of them? You know, do you ever get any looks or just like, wow, you're in such great shape? Yes and no, I guess I'll say. I don't really pay much attention to that, but usually with my groups, I'm usually the oldest one. So <laughs> so I encourage those younger than me, look, if I can do this, I know you can also. <laughs> Absolutely. In 2022, you were named uh, as a Senior Planet Sponsored Athlete with AARP. What did that new title entail? Oh my gosh. First of all, I have to tell you that even though I do these activities that are fun, I never considered myself to be an athlete. So this was just such um, an honor to even be looked at as an athlete. I consider myself an unintentional athlete because of the things I do just for having fun. Several years prior to that, AARP had uh, honored me with um, to represent them with an award, Profiles and Positive Aging. And I want to tell you, I'm just living my life, having a wonderful time. So to be a sponsored athlete, I stood up a little taller and <laughs> decided to have more fun. <laughs> mm. When did you start the program Walk for Wellness? I started that actually in 2018. And one of the reasons for starting that is I know that not everyone is ready to go in the mountains to go hiking. So the Walk for Wellness, which is a part of Walk with a Doc, I did it at local parks just to get people out and comfortable walking. And then they would be able to, if you will, graduate into hiking on actual hiking trails. Mm. And how did you pivot during the pandemic? Well, I did not stop my walking. That's something that's just a part of me. But as far as group hikes, I actually did it virtually. And I visited various parks around Metro Atlanta, and I would introduce people to parks that may be in their community that they did not even know about. Because I lived where I am now for three years before I discovered the park that's just a couple miles from me. So people have been joining me virtually ever since, and I just started restarted the face-to-face. -face. So people are starting to come back and I still have the community of virtual walkers as well. And they walk in place, they walk in their neighborhood and we've built a support system, a camaraderie because a lot of seniors like myself 
are single and just don't get out that much. So we have bonded very well. Mm, to keep them connected, even if it's not in person, that's just so important. And that encouragement that now you can give them, you might not be there in the room with them, but you can connect through the computer and motivate them that way. That's wonderful. And, and let me add, that's the other thing about Oats and Senior Planet, because it is also about teaching or getting people encouraged about using technology, you know, and then that whole livable community thing with AARP, it just works together. It's just a natural fit. It really is. Mm, that's wonderful. I read that you like to refer to the active adults you work with as OPALs. What does yes. this acronym stand for? Older people with active lifestyles. And the tagline, I must add, is OPALs are very unique gems. And that's what we are as older people. <laughs> <laughs> that's so great. <laughs> I really liked that connection. <laughs> I feel like when people reach a certain age, they become more stagnant, as you were saying. And it's sometimes not even due to their own will. It could be difficult walking, health issues, what have you. What advice do you give those who want to get out and walk or hike, but physically can't? I would say if you could even just sit out on your front porch or get some sunshine, sit in nature if you can't walk. And also, even though I walk quite a bit now, I've done a half marathon, but when I first started, I had no idea where it would take me. So I try to meet people where they are. Do not compare yourself. Do not try to keep up. If you can only walk five minutes a day, whatever it may be, do that. But just do what you can, and you will undoubtedly feel and experience how much better it makes you. And your doctor will tell you that, too, when you go back. That's what I've heard from some of my walkers. Mm. What have been some other stories you've received from seniors who have participated in your walks? Yes, one in particular, well, two that come to mind that I'll quickly share one is uh, one of the walkers. She said that she could barely walk across her living room without being winded. So she said she was never an outdoors person, you know, sit and watch TV. And her doctor told her, you need to walk at least half hour each day or five days a week. And she said, how can I do that? You know, I can't walk across my living room. What is he talking about? So as we are sometimes, she said, I'll show him. I'll get it done. And six weeks after doing that, she found she had lost 10 pounds. She was walking with us in my Just Walk program. And we had been walking 45 minutes. And because we had conversation and socialization going on, she didn't realize that she had walked that long and how far. So that's one of the benefits of being with others that helps you to, to move on. And one other quick story I'd love to mm -hmm. share with oh, you. Oh, please do. 
there was this woman at the time, she was 91 years old and she was out walking and she was in training for the Peachtree Road Race, which is a 10K race. She was in training walking at the park because four generations of her family were going to do that together. I thought that was phenomenal. Wow, that's amazing. And one of the things that I definitely like to express, and that is as we're aging, to embrace the joys of aging and let that little light shine upon others so that they too may savor in the spices of life. Life just gets better. It's all in how you look at it. Health and wellness coach Carolyn Hartfield. She'll lead a hike at Sweetwater Creek on Saturday beginning at 9 a.m., more information is available on our website, wabe.org slash citylights. Coming up, we'll talk with the award-winning filmmaker behind the web series The Last Bodega in Brooklyn. Amplifying Atlanta, this is 90.1 WABE. This is City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Reitzes. Thank you for listening. This past September, The Last Bodega in Brooklyn took home the award for Best Web Series at the annual Atlanta-based Bronze Lands Film Festival. For the unfamiliar... Bronze Lens spotlights BIPOC filmmakers, directors, and actors, both locally and around the globe. As we continue our Black History Month celebration, let's listen back to my conversation with Mosiah Moon Sammy, the award-winning New York City-based filmmaker behind The Last Bodega in Brooklyn. When he joined me via Zoom, he began by defining what makes a storefront qualify as a bodega. A bodega is a small storefront where they're placed all throughout the city. And these are very convenient locations that if you need to go ahead and get a drink, you need to get a sandwich, you need to get some toilet paper, you need to get easy, accessible items that you wouldn't have to go to a large grocery chain, you're going to go to your bodega. Hmm. And what is your personal connection to bodegas? My connection to bodegas is something that I've experienced throughout my life. So I'm actually originally from Florida, but my family's from Brooklyn. So I've been coming up to Brooklyn throughout the course of my whole entire life. And one of the things I would always do with my cousins when we would uh, go out is we'd always go to the bodega. And I just thought it was a really, really, really kind of like special thing because they knew the bodega owner. They'd be like, hey, what's up? And then like they would get something and I never had that experience at a grocery store, right? Like in Florida, we wouldn't call it bodegas. We would call it the candy lady, right? <laughs> and the candy lady would just like have a little storefront in a house. 
So it was like that feeling, but like the bodega was official, official. Um, not to say that the candy lady wasn't official, but you see what I'm saying? Yeah, especially yeah. if the candy lady was giving you candy. Exactly, exactly. So what led you to create this series? I really, you know, this is something that really was bubbling way before I even started to embark on a journey of becoming a filmmaker. When I was visiting Brooklyn every single year, I'm an 80s baby, so I, I was here throughout the course of the 90s. Seeing Brooklyn at first, so my family's from two places, Crown Heights and Bed-Stuy. And when I would come up here, to be honest with you, it was scary. Like, I remember being like, oh, I don't really like going down the block. There was just a lot of things that was happening. And when I saw the first change in the neighborhood, I got really excited because I saw a new building, right? And I was like, oh, okay, cool. Like, there's like something new happening. Now I'm a child. And when I see the first new building, I'm excited. When I see the first new coffee shop and the first new X, Y, and Z coming to the neighborhood, I'm excited because I'm seeing changes in the neighborhood that seem positive. Now I'm a kid, so I can't really fully understand what's happening. But when I see the new building and I see the new coffee shop, I notice that my family and people that are reflective of my family are not in these places. They're not in the new buildings. They're not in the coffee shop. And so that excitement turned into confusion and confusion turned into anger. And that anger started to bubble because I didn't understand why my family's neighborhood um, was getting changed in a positive way, which one would think on the outside looking in. But then when you get older and you understand what's really happening, it becomes very bothersome. So the inspiration is really the transition of black and brown neighborhoods in Brooklyn, in New York, and throughout the nation and really in the world at this point, and then essentially getting pushed out of our neighborhoods. It's not, it's not so black and white and it's not one dimensional. It's many different things that are happening. So researching, studying, having a personal connection through this, whether it's through home ownership or through businesses that's happening in my family's neighborhood, inspired me when I became a filmmaker to send a message and to send something that I felt was not only representative of my family, but families that are experiencing this all over, which is actually mm. gentrification. Yeah. And you mentioned the two parts of Brooklyn where your family lived, Crown Heights and Bed-Stuy. I know the homes go, some homes in those areas go for upwards of a million dollars now. A million and up, a million and up to move into the, uh, that's right. So this series focuses on an Afro-Latino family from Crown Heights that owns a bodega in their neighborhood. Why did you want to showcase this series from the perspective of two 20-something-year-old siblings running their family store? Because I think, you know, I think something that, as a filmmaker, I think about a couple things in the stories that I create. One, I think about the extension of my community. I think that we have so much rich culture as Black people that we get put into this container, the container of... Uh, simply America, the container of simply New York, the container of simply LA or Atlanta. But the truth of the matter is, is that we are international people. And I wanted to show the Black diaspora and push it out further. Black people are part of 
Latino culture. My family, my mother is Panamanian and my family, specifically my cousins in my age group, were very proud to be black. And uh, when you create a further push in the culture and the culture sees, oh, like, yeah, there's Afro-Latinos. And like, and if you want to get outside of culture and background, we could talk about when you see Serena Williams in tennis or Tiger Woods in golf. This is an expansion of culture. And I think it's so important as a filmmaker to have that responsibilities. Now, the reason I put the sister and brother dynamic is because fundamentally through colonialism, the Black family has been ripped apart. So we've seen, we have different structures of the Black family with the uh, husband, wife, and the kids. I think that's great. Let's tell it from different sides. Let's show how we're strong as a family from different perspectives. Filmmaker Mosiah Moon Sammy. More information about The Last Bodega in Brooklyn is on our website, wabe.org slash citylights. More than six million Americans live with dementia, and among them, 70% cannot afford proper medical care or equipment for themselves. Two organizations hope to alleviate some of the high costs of dementia care with a benefit concert. Friends of Disabled Adults and Children, or FODAC, merged with the Alzheimer's Music Fest for this year's concert, aiming to raise vital money for families living with Alzheimer's and dementia. Chris Brandt, president and CEO of FODAC, shared what his organization does for the community. We are collecting gently used home medical equipment all over Georgia and helping our state along with neighboring states to get that back out of the hands of people who are struggling with illnesses, injuries, and disabilities. Over half the people we serve are seniors who need this equipment every day to stay independent and thrive in their own home. The lineup for this concert features some iconic 90s bands, including Arrested Development, Cowboy Mouth, and Cracker. Speech, a member of Arrested Development, explains why he's involved with this important cause. Through music, a lot of people pay attention. You know, we know that Alzheimer's affects and dementia affects black people here in this nation and in a higher rate ratio than other races. And we really want people to feel empowered. So this is a great opportunity to do that. The Music Fest is Saturday at the Buckhead Theater. More information about tickets and the lineup is available on the website fodac.org. You've been listening to City Lights, our daily exploration of arts and culture. Tomorrow at 11 a.m., Najee Dorsey will tell us about leaving Mississippi, his current exhibition at Black Art in America Gallery. Plus, we'll hear about the musical You're in Town, opening this weekend at Actors Express. If you missed part of today's show, like my earlier conversation about the new exhibition, Black American Portraits, at Spelman College Museum of Fine Art, 
You could catch up through our podcast or on our website, wabe.org slash citylights. There you'll find a complete archive of our stories so you can listen to City Lights on your schedule. City Lights senior producer is Kim Droves. Our producers are Summer Evans and Janine Etter, and our engineer is Shelley Canavy. I'm your host, Lois Reitzes. Do connect with City Lights on social media. We're at WABE City Lights on both Facebook and Instagram. Thanks for listening to WABE Atlanta. Ever wondered where to find the best dumplings in town? Curious about Atlanta's obsession with lemon pepper? Join us on Savory Stories, a new podcast as we uncover the untold tales behind Atlanta's culinary scene. From the roots of your favorite dishes to the creators that bring them to life, we're diving deep into the heart of the city's food culture. Listen to Savory Stories at wabe.org slash podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts. W-A-B-E. The world has changed from shifts in power to a mental health crisis. So with all this social change, how do we balance the human desire for empathy, the business need for productivity, and the hope to make an impact in our community? This is a new podcast, The Social Impact Leader. I'm Jeff Schinnebarker. Join me as we explore people doing work a little different. Available every Wednesday at wabe.org forward slash podcast or wherever you get your podcasts. W-A-B-E.